Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And today I'm talking to Adam Fletcher about weird travel, which Adam describes as visiting places that other people try to leave or places that are not usually thought of as tourist destinations, places that fascinate us for very different reasons. We talk about North Korea, the unexpected beauty of Chernobyl, a tuk-tuk race across India, and the death rituals of Sulawesi. We also talk about the peculiarities of being British, the morality of travelling to a country with a regime you might not want to support, and how to notice the unique weirdness of your own country, wherever that is. This is a wide-ranging discussion which I enjoyed a lot, so I hope you enjoy listening to my interview with Adam. Adam Fletcher is the best-selling author of weird travel books and humorous memoir, including Don't Go There, Don't Come Back and Tuk Tuk for Two. So welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm excited to talk about this topic. So what is weird travel and what drew you to write about these kinds of places? Yeah, I guess weird travel is kind of my term and the more common term for this genre is probably something like dark tourism, which I think has a kind of negative spin that I I don't really like. So I guess it's kind of uh, going to places that other people are trying to leave uh, would probably be how I would describe it or places that are not kind of primarily thought of as being tourist destinations. And what drew you to this topic? I guess I grew up in one of those places, which is kind of extremely unremarkable small kind of market town in Norfolk in the southeast of England that was actually featured in this book Crap Towns I remember and I kind of always had the feeling that this is a kind of strange place and I don't really understand it and they don't really seem to understand me and so as soon as I'm old enough I'm going to leave this place and try to understand what is odd about it and kind of if the rest of the world works the same way or not and maybe it's like that thing about if you only speak one language you don't really know how any languages work I think it's kind of a bit like that with cultures. If you only know one culture, you don't really know anything about culture or how your culture works. You're a bit like that, the fish swimming along that doesn't know you're in water. And so I think as soon as I could leave, which was basically straight after uni, I then started started traveling. And that kind of gave me the distance to get a, a look at British culture and myself and more of a feeling for why, why I didn't fit so well in, in, in that place. And then, I don't know, I just got really interested in kind of edge cases and strange places and maybe it's being I guess we're storytellers huh so we know the power of story to unite a group of of people around a shared belief and mobilize them and I guess I'm interested in what happens when when people take that tool and, and use it for bad instead of good. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, you do actually have a book on understanding the British, which doesn't come so much under your weird travel brand as sort of just (laughs) travel writing. And and you, of course, you are British, but you live in Germany now. So you mentioned there that you left because you didn't feel like you fit, basically. So what do you see as weird about the British, (laughs) since I'm also British? (laughs) Yeah, I guess... Yeah, I could talk probably all day about the British, but I also don't want to get too too political because I'll, I'll switch you off at your readers, uh, your listeners. Sorry, but yeah, I think we're we're definitely quite a weird bunch, huh? and that there's a kind of very strong sense of kind of a myth of exceptionalism about the British. We've never really confronted our our dark past. Um, I guess maybe coming from Germany, living in Germany, this is a country that's definitely done that, and maybe. It's gone too far in the other direction where they're now kind of like, I think, really hated themselves for a really long time and could not see that they were doing any any good. And the British, it's kind of the opposite. We've kind of never really looked at any bad that we've done in the past. So we never really look at any of the bad that we do in the present. And so Britain is a kind of weird, there's a lot of division. And you saw that with kind of Brexit. And there's a lot of division between the kind of the old and the young and the, the north and the south and kind of people who own their home versus people who rent their home. And it's a kind of weirdly divided place that on the surface is incredibly friendly. And yet there's a whole lot of stuff happening in in subtext, which is very hard to understand if you go there, I think maybe as a foreigner or as a tourist, what's what's going on. It's funny you mentioned subtext. I uh, interviewed a uh, Finnish author, <laughs> Helena Halmer, and she she said, what's weird about England is I say something like, uh, and, and someone will say, oh, yes, we'll definitely do that. And what they actually mean is, no, we never will. I never want to see you again. <laughs> and, and I, I mean, yeah, it makes us both laugh because we get it. I mean, so much of our communication is subtext. And it's interesting because uh, not to get into relationships, but I found when I was trying to date in other cultures that so yeah. much of the romantic language in the UK is also is body language is subtext. And it was very hard to date in other cultures but clearly you've managed oh, that for sure <laughs> yeah no it's really and with my, my partner is German I think I'm I'm really careful what questions I ask her because the answer I, I get will always be always completely honest and I think in Britain that wouldn't be that way you like the, the, the often the recipient of the question would understand what you're looking for and what you're looking for is not always necessarily the truth what you're looking for is sometimes like a comforting lie I think in Germany, the concept of a comforting lie doesn't really exist. And so I have to be always very careful what I ask, um, because I will always get the truth. And the truth sometimes uh, hurts. Uh, There's a good expression I heard, I think it was from a BBC journalist, um, which was that, let me see if I can remember it now, the, the Germans are too honest to be nice, and the British are too nice to be honest. <laughs> surface level they're nice yeah but you just never always know what's going on kind of in the background so I think we're we're definitely there's a kind of ideal of Britishness and not only do we sell that to the world that's this sort of Beatles Wimbledon tea drinking saying sorry being nice kind of ideal of Britishness I feel like we sell that to the world but we also sell it to ourselves We, we get that propaganda a lot and I'm actually not totally convinced that it has really that much place in modern Britain, which seems to be a slightly more divided, kind of less friendly place than that ideal. I don't know how often we're able to live up to that ideal. 
Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I live in Bath in the southwest, which is obviously full of brilliant stereotypes, including lots of Jane Austen fans in bonnets. Uh, mm. And now we've got the Bridgerton tea shops. <laughs> <laughs> but also now we have a Frankenstein museum, thankfully, because, of course, Mary Shelley lived here. But it's interesting because it's exactly that. It is this uh, one level, the stereotype of England. And then on the other hand, we've got Frankenstein in the corner over there. So I really like that. But let's come back to weird travel, because I feel yeah. like this is uh, places you want to leave is, is a good idea. So you've got a lot of books and you've written about a lot of the places that you've traveled. What are some of the places that stick out in your mind as especially weird and do live up to that reputation as strange well i guess the one uh, that people are most interested in and the strangest place i've been is definitely north korea i mean i guess most people have an, an idea about north korea and that it's kind of the hermit kingdom and it's the place i guess the most successful cult of personality is in north korea in which propaganda has permeated every aspect of the daily life of the 25 million or so people that that live there and that that's from this kind of one one family the kims are usually referred to as the dear leaders uh, when you're there and so this is a place in which you as a tourist you have absolutely no no freedom where you you have an itinerary and that begins at maybe 7 a.m in the morning and might end at maybe 8 p.m at night and you have no control about where you go and you have no control about what you see and you have little control even about what you talk about when you're when you're going to these places and basically, you just tore a wide variety of dear leader statues and monuments, and then are told terrible stories, like terrible propaganda stories about all of the things that the, you know, the glorious achievements of of the Kims. So that's, yeah, I guess that was definitely the the strangest place, and also one of the least pleasant places that I ever visited, I would say. So why was it? less pleasant is it because you felt just uneasy or was it actually like the food was terrible the place was ugly what, what was it actually like there I think the, the places themselves are it's just kind of very Soviet I would say there's a lot of pomp and there's a lot of big buildings and large monuments and huge squares and there's kind of like everything is designed to make you feel as small and insignificant as possible so that you would not dare in any way ever to try to stand up to the might of the state. And I feel like that, that as a feeling is not nice. And as humans, we would tend to be more comfortable and more drawn to small places where you can, where you can see and feel the edges, like narrow cobbled streets. And, and that's what you don't get in North Korea. And, but the more uncomfortable thing is that the, so you have two, two guides who, who follow you at, at all times. And so one guide is checking on the other guide and one guide is, is guiding you and telling you about, about the country. But a lot of the time I had the feeling that they also didn't believe the things that they were saying to me. And so they, they probably had enough contact with, with foreigners over time or had read some of the things we were carrying. Like our guide was sometimes reading our lonely planet on North Korea while we were traveling there with them. And so like they, they probably had a, more of a sense of the world than the average North Korean and knew that a lot of the stories they were telling us were not true. And I think that's, that's uncomfortable if there's kind of, if everyone is, is taking part in the lie and can't say that it's a lie, that's a kind of hell. Yeah. It's really weird to think, do you, so do they welcome 
visitors as in it just seems odd to me that they would even allow visitors in like that or is it to maintain this facade that it's open in some way it's often because of the sanctions that they're actually just really desperate for foreign cash and so i think it was about twenty-five thousand tourists a year so it's a very tiny amount of, of, of tourists but they we, we were valuable to them because we bought in foreign cash. And my, I was there quite a few years ago, almost maybe 2015, 2016. And I've heard that Kim Jong-un has uh, like kind of widened the tourist program. And there's now significantly more tourists coming um, every year. And that they're a really important source of foreign cash, which I guess is you have to think about the morality of going there or not. And if you want to give regimes like that money, and I've never really come down to a a good answer on that. Mm, this is a really good question. The morality of travel, and it's a tough one too in places that are some people would call developing countries. So I went to school in Malawi in Central Africa, mm. where people are very poor and mm. healthcare is very different. And there were questions about whether, as a white person, you should be living there and mm. on the other side or as an in an expat community with swimming pools and things like that and whether mm. that's good because it brings in money or if it's actually just colonialist and terrible although this, this was back in the 80s so that wasn't really discussed but it, it's the same with what you're talking about the morality of traveling now is is it better to go to developing places and bring money in and try and support local people or not have that attitude and um yeah, I don't know. What do you think now? I'd also be very interested to hear what conclusions you've come to, because I feel like this is an issue that I still I still struggle with. But I guess I have certain kind of guiding principles, which is that the world is made better through exchange. And that's the exchange, of, you know, between people, usually in the form of kind of stories. And that there's less prejudice and less stereotypes are able to grow and, and fester and ignorance can fester only when we're not in contact with with each other. And so that's how I justify it to myself without knowing really if that is correct or not. So I'd be also like, what conclusions did, did you come to from your experiences in Malawi about? Mm, well, I was get, going to school in Malawi, so I didn't really think about it then. Mm. But now I I feel like I want to travel to more and more places. Absolutely. I think travel is so important. In, in fact, as we were saying, with the divisions in the world, I think the best things are to get to know people of different cultures to, you know, as in you're married to, well, sorry, your partner is German. My husband is a New Zealand, Hungarian uh, Jew. My sister-in-law is Nigerian. Um, you know, we have this multicultural family mm. and you only get to be with people as romantic partners if you <laughs> if you travel and are open to other cultures. And I feel that's the same with traveling in general. It's like, yeah, if you go with the attitude of understanding as opposed to the attitude of I am a tourist, serve me. <laughs> That's yeah, maybe the difference. Yeah, I feel like it's so, it so enriches your understanding of your own culture and that's somehow also overlooked from, from travel. It's like you really, it's, it's, I would not, I don't think I would understand my upbringing and my, my programming if I hadn't spent so much time, so much time abroad. 
Yeah, and it's funny, just back on Bath again, before the pandemic, we would get coach loads of Chinese tourists every day rocking up and they will come off the coach and take pictures of British people in bonnets <laughs> standing <laughs> next to the, the the sort of tourist bits. And uh, that's great because that's exactly what, you know, we British people go to other countries and take pictures of <laughs> people in stereotypical situations. So I, I, I do want to say it also happens the other way. Plenty of people come to our country and assume stereotypes. So I like that Chinese people are coming to Bath. <laughs> <laughs> and think we all wear bonnets. It's brilliant. Yeah, I would love to hear the stories they tell when they go back to China about what what England is like. All these... oh, well, even even like this again. This was before the pandemic when they were coming, and it, none of them had cash. They would try and buy a coffee with WeChat, and yeah, they yeah. must just think we were so. <laughs> the backwards. whole world runs on WeChat. Yeah, yeah. They were like, yeah. "Oh my goodness, these people in Bath—they're so—they're they're just ancient." <laughs> <laughs> they're paper money. They're dirty paper money. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's so funny. But um, sorry, coming back on weird places, you do have this really interesting chapter on Chernobyl, which is somewhere I'm fascinated with, because in a way, obviously, there's the danger because of the radiation. But what I've heard is that sort of nature is taking the place back. So what was that like? Yeah, it's really like going to a kind of uh, like a wildlife sanctuary, which is not what I expected from from Chernobyl. And of course, you can go to the the town where most of the workers were and kind of they had to leave with I think it was two or three hours notice so that a lot of the town is as it was the bits that haven't been looted and so like there's that side of it but the, the park itself is just like a really awesome nature reserve in which everything is poisonous so yeah it's like on the one side incredibly lush but on the other side you would never eat an apple that you find growing on a tree so yeah it was definitely not what I expected in that there were lots of animals like kind of horses and dogs running around and deer and I can't remember what other animals we saw but there was really a sense of okay nature's taken this back over and it's in a way incredibly harmonious now that this kind of like nuclear power plant that we built there and scarred the land with uh, isn't isn't working anymore. And I mean, in these times of environmental difficulty, that gives me hope. I love the Chernobyl story because of this. It's like we destroyed it, we poisoned it. And within a few generations, nature has taken it back and is just getting on with it, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, of course, is like you mentioned, everything is dangerous there. How do you weigh up the danger of a particular trip with the desire for something unique? Yeah, I think Chernobyl is not especially dangerous. Like we had Geiger counters in the group that I was in and you can watch and, and move around and see how the needle moves. And so like it depends greatly on the kind of what surfaces you're on. So asphalt doesn't really retain radiation, but then you could kind of move off the asphalt and move into the kind of wooded areas and you would see that it would like be 10 times as high, but it's still very low. Like if you're just there for a day, it's not really dangerous. Uh, I, I remember my guide at the time uh, told me that you get more radiation on a flight. I don't know if that's true, but I've chosen to believe it. I definitely don't consider myself a kind of adventure traveler or like I'm really, I'm interested in specific places for specific reasons. And it's really usually around kind of propaganda or like unique forms of government or someone's trying something weird. Like I have a chapter on Lieberland in Don't Go There, which is like a group of people trying to create their own country on an island in the Danube. Like that's really interesting to me and very safe. Like this, although actually we did get stopped by Croatian police boats, but in general, it's very safe. So I think like 
I have all of the privileges that make travel as safe as it as it can be. You know, I'm a kind of large, white, male, heterosexual with English as a native language, who's also kind of middle class. And so I feel like there's there's a lot of things I don't have to worry about that other people would have to worry about. And I'm cognizant of that. And I'm very lucky that I can travel largely safely. And I've been in so many countries by now that I don't really fear the average person. Like the average person everywhere is awesome. It's only regimes that I fear. And so I'm careful about which regimes I, I go to. Like there are places like North Korea, which I don't think are really very dangerous as tourists because the rules are so clear. And then there are other countries I've been, like I was in Iran recently, where I didn't feel safe because the rules were less obvious. And at the time there was a kind of, I also have a German passport. So I was there on my German passport and there was a kind of bit of a spat between Iran and Germany at that time. And then you start to get worried because then you say, okay, this regime seems to apply its kind of, uh, its rules very arbitrarily. And I could become a bargaining chip between these two nations. Like there's a good example of the guy in North Korea. What was his name? Otto Vambia um, was an American guy in North Korea who stole a propaganda poster actually from the hotel I stayed at when I was there. And this, because I think mostly because he was American, he became a very useful bargaining chip um, because the relations between the two countries were really in a bad state at that time. That was before Trump. And so I feel like maybe as an American, I would be careful about going to North Korea or maybe slightly less now because, you know, Trump, seem to improve. made friends <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not sure what what biden's stance on north korea is but things definitely improved but i feel like it's definitely worth looking at the relations between your two countries so where, where you're going and where you came from and seeing okay can i become a bargaining chip here because i definitely fear regimes more than i fear the people that i'll meet who have been uniformly fantastic everywhere i've ever been Mm. Uh, although of course it is people who put the regime rules into practice <laughs> yeah that's true that's true i agree with you and i think that this also comes down to respect which is just as true in a safe country as it is in a, a more dangerous one in that if mm. you abide by the social rules so for example when i traveled on my own as a, a woman in the middle east i would cover my head a lot i wore a wedding ring when i wasn't married i made sure everything was very modest i i behaved in a way that i thought was appropriate for the culture and people would arrive on coaches wearing like little shorts or, you know, just clothes, clothing and attitude uh, of respect for the culture. Even if you don't agree with it, <laughs> you, you you still have to to live like that while you're there, right? Of course. I mean, you're agreeing to play by their rules uh, for the duration of your stay. I feel like that's a kind of that's a kind of contract I make with that country when I agree to go there is that I will respect their culture and I will behave like in accordance with that culture, regardless of what I, what I think about it. And then I'll go away and, and write horrible things about it. And then, <laughs> then never go back. <laughs> yeah, well, and this is the interesting thing. I feel like because of social media, which has obviously got a lot worse, people are used to saying what they think, even yeah. when that might be really culturally insensitive. So probably don't post that thing on Instagram while you're in the country. <laughs> yeah, I would also be worried these days that your your social media is checked so things you said in the past uh, could come back to haunt you when you when you arrive in in that country at immigration i would also be worried about that maybe as a travel writer i'm more more nervous now than the average person but 
Yeah. And I mean, most people listening, including myself, we're not going to go to these places that you go to. (laughs) But I do think that is it is important. And one of the principles of safe travel is just abiding by by the rules of of the place. And that even includes I don't know if you saw as we record this, there was a a shark uh, attack in Western Australia on a beach. And when I was in WA, I remember people saying to me, you don't go swimming over there because there's really big, great white sharks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah okay that sounds fine to me <laughs> but um I did want to ask you I mean so many of uh, there are stereotypes all over the world right so have you uh, been to places that had a reputation or a stereotypical thing of being weird but actually didn't turn out that way that is a very good question I don't think so like I feel like everywhere is weird and if you can't see its weirdness that's probably more a failure of your own imagination or attention than that the place itself is normal. And that's mostly just because humans are pretty weird uh, and our cultures all had to optimize for something. And it's kind of, we've made trade-offs. Every culture's made trade-offs and that leaves it strong in some areas, but weak in others. And it's often in that kind of area of weakness that the weirdness comes in. You just realize, okay, this country just works really differently than the country where I'm from. In this country, it's all about, I don't know, religion or it's all about the the family and this kind of like extended family networks are everything or, um, yeah. And so, no, I can't really think of a place that I didn't find weird. Mm, but then, as you said, maybe that's because of your attention and your noticing these things. So how can uh, the rest of us sort of tune into what's weird? How do you go about changing your attitude to travel so that you notice these stranger things i think that like story is a really huge part of it for me so i feel like i'm really trying to meet as many people as possible i've always been a, like a huge fan of couch surfing which is basically gone now but this so kind of staying with locals where where possible and then you're observing them in their kind of natural environment and natural habitat and you have a lot of time with them and then any kind of pretense at normalcy Will, will fall away by hour four in someone's company. And that's also in my case as well. You, you can have this kind of veneer of normalcy for, for a little while, but eventually the cracks will come through and you'll see each other's idiosyncrasies and you start getting all of these stories. And it's often you don't know until you're asking, until you're asking enough questions. You, you don't know what is, what, or they don't know what is interesting about their own culture. It takes time to tease out this stuff. And so for me, like I always travel for long periods of time. I move like slowly. So I might spend three months in a country and maybe only go to three places. And so that I'm really spending spending time there. And that's, of course, again, a real luxury and privilege that I can do that. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting. And just anything that you notice that you think that's different to my culture and why might that be? I think that is it always an interesting question. Yeah, that's 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 a great chain of thought. I think that will lead you really interesting places. And then when you start asking them about that, it's often that they have they don't know also that the rest of the world doesn't work that way, like the Chinese people with the with, with WeChat. Mm. And so I feel like then it's really interesting to explore with them like with with the people that you're you're staying with why their culture works that way mm. what has it optimized for and what are the advantages of that versus what the british culture is optimized for or german culture is optimized for and, and what does that cost us so yeah. an example of subtext it, it costs us a huge amount of mental energy to try to work out 
what is really being communicated. And I remember when I settled in Germany, I remember that at some point I was no longer thinking before I spoke. And I, I think I hadn't been aware that I was thinking before I spoke before. It was only somehow living here long enough that I noticed this, this just went away. And when I lived in Britain, I don't know if all British people do this, but I, I would often think about what I was saying and if there was a way that it could be misconstrued or offend the, uh, the person I was talking to. Because we have such a kind of a value around being nice and not ruffling feathers and, and, and offending people. It was incredibly freeing to notice that I'm no longer doing that. I just I trust German culture that if I get in a conflict, the other person will tell me directly what I have done wrong. And we will discuss that until the point of which like, of kind of mutual satisfaction, or we will just like have an argument and go our separate ways and never talk again. But it will come to a head. Whereas in, in England, it, will, it would be more like, I don't know, my mum would tell me five years after I did something wrong that I did it wrong. And oh, yeah, the holding her. a grudge for a generation. <laughs> yeah, and that it hurt her. And she's been carrying this thing for five years. And I feel like, why? Like that doesn't, that has not benefited me in any way. We could have wrapped that up in an afternoon and you've been stuck with that all of, all of this time. That's so interesting. I, and as you were saying, I completely get that. And in my my own family, I, there are the, sort of these feuds that have gone on for 30 years. And I'm like, what is going on? But it's also interesting. I said my husband is is Jewish. And I, when I am, sometimes I'm like, I, I don't want to argue about this. And he's like, we're not arguing. We're having a, a discussion. And of course, in, in the Jewish culture, they discuss everything. Everybody will have a long discussion about something and everyone jumps in and has it. And, and then it's all over. Like you say, we move on. And I'm like, well, I don't want to offend you. Don't want to talk about it that way. And I've learned that this is just a cultural difference between us. And what I see as an argument, he just sees as as a discussion. <laughs> yeah. Or he, it's, it feels to me that the the Jewish frame might be healthier. Um, oh yes, completely. But I, it, as you say, it's very hard to ch- even if you recognise it in yourself, it's very hard to change your cultural upbringing. <laughs> oh, for sure, it, this stuff is so deep. Yeah, but super interesting. I did want to ask about India because <laughs> uh, talking of cultural differences, when I was doing a cycling trip down the west of India and uh, our bus driver, sometimes if you got tired, you could get in the bus. And every morning our bus driver would pray and he was very devout. And I asked him about what he was praying for. And it was if we, if we all <laughs> died, we would get, yeah, well, not, not, not to crash, but if we died, then we'd all go to, to the right place and all of this. And he was just lovely. But very you did interesting this. That um, he, didn't, he didn't pray to stay alive well exactly and that's why it's interesting right so tell us about tuk tuk for two because i i just think indian driving is some of the craziest thing on the planet <laughs> oh it's definitely i think i don't know if i have a bit, i'm not sure i've been anywhere with worse driving than india and the only thing that kind of saves it from complete calamity is the congestion like that when the crashes happen you're going so slow that it's more <laughs> like the, the whole country is more like a kind of giant open air dodgems experiment and it's saved by the fact that you're rarely above 30 kilometers an hour but anyway yeah we i did a uh, tuk-tuk race um, which was a thousand kilometers in five days which doesn't sound that 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 much but it's india so you're very rarely going at all and when you are going you're often going no more than 30 kilometers an hour so I think actually we averaged 12 hours of driving a day to mm. get it done, uh, which was incredibly exhausting and kind of terrifying. I, was, I got terror fatigue 
I, I don't know if I knew that terror fatigue existed. But <laughs> at some point we were having like so many near crashes and near death experiences that I I don't know, I just entered some sort of Zen state where I didn't really feel feel terror at that anymore. Um, but I mean, I think with travel, I, I often divide things between present fun and retrospective fun. And this race was retrospective fun. It's something that I, I enjoy having done rather than I enjoy doing. So what were some of the, I mean, you, you say the terror. I mean, I, I've been in tuk-tuks in India, but for people who might not have had that experience, when you mentioned uh, how slow things are, I guess, but I mean, I remember the sort of animals in the road, things on vehicles that should not be on vehicles. Oh, uh, for sure. And they do, a, it's kind of the biggest vehicle always has right of way. This is in Indian traffic rules. And the tuk-tuk is other than uh, like a, a scooter, the tuk-tuk is always the smallest vehicle. So you ne- you never have right of way basically at any moment, and so this kind of like you you'd be driving along normally, and then there's a, there's this bus that that comes up alongside you and will automatically expect you to slow down so that it can pull back in if it wants to, and it knows where the stops are, but you don't. And if there's a stop just in front of you, it will just swerve immediately in front of you and then slam on its brakes, and then you'll have to react and you'll have a very tiny amount of time to do that. And then lorries seem to have priority over buses, although they're often like of a similar size and so sometimes you'll have it that you're being overtaken by a bus at the precise moment that a lorry has decided it wants to overtake the bus and so you're blocking kind of three lanes even though there is only one lane going in your <laughs> direction and it's just stuff like this and they already warned us like because there are cows wandering around often with bells so you get some warning that there's a cow coming but the the organizers of the race already told us like if, if you kill a cow they will kill you and so we're also terrified of kind of crashing into a cow and being the victims of some kind of holy mob justice for killing the sacred cow um so yeah it was terrifying but in some ways wonderful now that i survived it yeah and it's funny because i i again i mean being british we have a lot of indian culture in the uk and i feel very at home in india i i just mm. felt very comfortable i think because you you know i like the food as well i mean i'm probably the only person who cycled through india for 3 weeks and put on weight <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just ate so much good food. But um, one of the kind of I am maybe weird in terms of not like our culture. The place in India would be Varanasi, the burning ghats, the burning yeah. of the bodies, and I mean, death culture. You, you mentioned dark tourism at the beginning is is absolutely fascinating. So, are there places you've been that sort of where death is treated very differently? Yeah, there was one place in Don't Come Back, uh, the Tanataraja, which is a kind of. Uh, tribe that's on Sulawesi which is an island in Indonesia and they have very unusual death customs in that they save their entire lives in order to afford an enormous kind of multi-day ceremony funeral in which you have to sacrifice a certain number of buffalo i think it was 21 or 23 or 24 buffalo uh, which might cost you fifty thousand dollars, which oh, is a huge goodness. amount of money in, in in Indonesia, and this is the only way to go to heaven. And until you have sacrificed a buffalo, your soul lives in purgatory, uh, where it haunts the uh, remaining family in this life uh, with bad luck. So that is, I'd say, that's that's incredibly weird. And so people are constantly either getting into debt or saving their entire lives to be able to afford to buy this certain number of buffalo so that they can go to heaven and not uh, haunt their families and bring them bad luck. 
mm-hmm. I went to one of these funerals, which is uh, last I think five five days. They're slaughtering all of the buffalo, and there's a big feast that that takes place, and a lot of kind of like special dancing and. You also ask not only buffaloes. You also have to have a life-size wooden effigy of yourself called a tau tau. Well, and that comes back to respect because that does sound crazy to us, but humans are humans, right? And humans have generally will find a reason to believe what they believe, and we have the same thing. I mean, the, the pandemic has been fascinating to see what stories have emerged from different areas that in some ways sound absolutely crazy but Mm. presumably make sense to some other people so and that it's difficult isn't it for for you to see all those buffalo being slaughtered and people believing that it seems just strange but essentially I presume they took it very seriously it wasn't a joke extremely seriously yeah I think it was more the debt that they were putting themselves in that was so hard to 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 accept but like a a british person might splunk 30k on a wedding and Mm. think nothing of it i can't i haven't looked recently what the average wedding costs in the uk but i I can't imagine it's less than twenty thousand pounds probably more than that yes or in america a hundred thousand on a degree yeah i think it's almost always about status and expressions of status and in the uk we would do it on a wedding and there they're doing it on a funeral. But at that funeral, enormous kind of social interaction is happening behind the scenes that I'm I'm not privy to as a foreigner. But that's where a lot of marriages will come out of those funerals. That's where the community is all coming together. And this kind of like tight-knit bonding is taking place. And, and we're doing that. Uh, uh, you know, we're displaying our status at a wedding and they're displaying their status through fu- funerals. And so it's not really that different. Oh, again, I, I just checked them <laughs> the news before we got on the phone. But Paris Hilton has got married. I'm not sure what number wedding that is, but it, it has all these descriptions of her like five day wedding and all the different outfits she wore. And I mean, like you say, it is. It's it's about status and all of that in our in different societies. Goodness, we could talk for ages. I'm just fascinated by all this. Now, your books are fantastic, but apart from your books, what are a few other books that you recommend about weird travel or dark travel or just travel? in general yeah so um i had a look through because i I, uh, don't actually read that much travel but there's a few that are travel adjacent which i would i would love to recommend the first is tracks by robin davidson which is a pretty old book it's from 1990 and it's about a woman who decides she wants to cross the outback on her own with camels and so Mm. she has to first learn about how to look after camels and then she's kind of spending time with aborigines and then she goes off on this kind of this this quest to travel i think it's 1700 miles she she travels across the outback with her camels and it's and heartbreaking and many many other emotions so that's mm-hmm. one the second yeah, i one, read that um i was gonna say uh, i i read that before i went to australia in the year 2000 i left the uk and went to australia and was gone 11 years <laughs> but i read that book <laughs> before i left and, along with them um, you know the song lines by bruce chatwin they were oh, yeah, those yeah. were the books that sent me to australia basically <laughs> oh they're both terrific yeah uh, and the, the second one is uh, by a British journalist called Will Sturr. Um, and it's a book called The Heretics. The subtitle is Adventures with the Enemies of Science. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it has a somewhat similar format to Don't Go There, in which each chapter is a kind of, in my case, it was a different place. And in his, it's a different set of beliefs or a different strange belief. And he goes and spends time with those people, which often involves travel of some kind. And then he writes about where they got their beliefs from and how 
what holding that belief cost them and often it, it costs them a lot hence the kind of the, the enemies of science uh, part of it it's just a really terrific book like all, all of his books and the third one is uh, Stasi Land by Anna Fander and this is about the, the Stasi so the East German um, secret police and she was if I remember it right it's been a few years this one came out in 2003 she's also Australian anyway she was a, a young person living here who spoke German and it was after the fall of the wall and she was working for one of the broadcasting companies and noticed that no one was collecting stories about the kind of the East German experience uh, with the Stasi. And I think she put an ad in a newspaper asking for anyone who wanted to talk about like what happened to them at the hands of the Stasi and just started collecting these, these stories. And, and that became this book, Stasi Land. And it's just a really, really incredible book that taught me a lot about, about East Germany. Mm. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books online? Uh, you can find me at your local friendly Amazon store. Um, I'm exclusive to them, at least for the weird travel stuff. So yeah, you can just search Adam Fletcher at Amazon and you will find me. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Adam. That was great. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.